Lent, and we'll have a lot of readings from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we already started the last couple of weeks, and so I thought we'd do a little bit more in-depth study on this sermon. Um, as you recall that when I talked, preached about this a couple of weeks ago, that this is the message that Jesus preached from town to town to town. This is the gospel of the kingdom. And as he shared and he preached the same message from place to place, you, you'll see a few variances, a few differences, which would be normal. You see a little different version of it in Luke uh, than the one in Matthew. Um, and Luke took a lot of Jesus' teachings, kind of spread them out across his book, whereas Matthew really compressed them into this one sermon, sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount because it's, um, Matthew makes the intentional statement this, you know, that Jesus stood on the mountain. Um, sometimes you see it called the Great Sermon because uh, we do have different versions of it and we see it in different places. But Matthew wanted to stress that Jesus is the new Moses. And this actually comes from a passage in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 18, uh, verses 15. I think you have that in your notes. Moses prophesied. He said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brethren. Him shall you heed. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They have rightly said all they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not give heed to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses is prophesying for the Messiah that one would come, a prophet like him, who would come and, um, and explain the law and teach the law and give the, pe the, the word of God to the people, and they would be required to follow him. And because of that, um, I mean, in this passage, Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me. But by the time of Jesus, it was the expectation was that this prophet would be greater than Moses. A prophet greater than Moses would come. And a lot of times you see in Jesus' uh, teachings, his, his talks with people, he uses that phrase, one greater than Solomon is here. One greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Moses. And he, he juxtaposes himself against these great Old Testament prophets and telling them he is the fulfillment of all these prophecies about him. He is the greater prophet than all of these others. So this was a very powerful thing. So this is the sermon that Jesus went about preaching and standing there on the mountain, the new Moses begins to explain what God desires of them. Now up to this time, particularly since the exile, remember that uh, Israel divided in a civil war and the uh, northern kingdom was taken exile first and then later the southern kingdom of Judah was taken exile. And when they were taken exile to Babylon, the prophets continued to tell them that the reason they were in exile is because they failed to follow the law. And so, and the, the two particular laws which um, they felt um, 
most in, in which they had most violated God were the laws of idolatry against idolatry and the laws of, of keeping the Sabbath. Those were the two. And so you see that often in Jesus' ministry, how the Pharisees chide Jesus for not keeping the Sabbath the way they feel like it's prescribed. But even now, in the beginning of Jesus' teaching, as he begins teaching um, the, the gospel of the kingdom, he makes the shift, particularly in the very beginning, that this is not a new law. This is a new covenant. We have moved from the law of uh, submission to the obligations and the rules and regulations of the Torah, of the old law, to the law of love. And he does this right in the very beginning. But it's important for us to realize that the new covenant is not the new law. And a lot of times we look at it that way. We, we, we read through the Bible and we see these precepts that Jesus gives us and we treat them as if they were legal proclamations. Mm -hmm. And um, we began to de define a new law. Uh, but the new covenant is not the new law. The new covenant is the promise. And it's not even the new promise because Jesus has always been the promise of God. But it's a full understanding of the promise. So throughout the Old Testament, what we, we see, in, um, in, even in the writings of the, New of the Old Testament and, and the law and in the prophets, there was a diminished understanding of what God desired of them. Now, God spoke often about, about mercy. Oftentimes, you, you see God referred to in the Old Testament as the father of Israel. Um, these elements were there. But for the most part, the people missed them. They focused on a, a ritual observance and did not understand what God was speaking in terms of love and of mercy and of inclusion. So it became, it became kind of, of sad that as Israel be, became more and more confused about this, Jesus came to be the perfect revelation of God, to instruct us, and so that we would come to a full understanding. I mean, it, it, these elements are obviously all in the Old Testament. Jesus is constantly quoting the Old Testament, you know, largely the book of Deuteronomy, also the Psalms. The Psalms are the most quoted book by him. But the people did not understand. Israel did not understand. And so even though there's a great deal in the Old Testament about the inclusion of all, of all the nations, Israel had not, wanted nothing to do with all the nations. And there's a great deal in the Old Testament about love and mercy. Although you read in some of the Psalms, you know, God, help me smite my enemies, you know. So they, they, they continued to see God differently. This is something we all have to be cautious about because all of us tend to see God as some kind of supersized expression of ourselves. When we, we think of who God is, he often comes out very much like us, doesn't he? We, we, we think in terms of, oh, God must love the things I love and hate the things I hate, and, you know, God's going to judge these people because I don't like them. And <laughs> We tend to make God into some supersized ver version of ourselves. But 
Jesus came to teach us that God is so much greater. And of course, one of the greatest passages of that comes from Isaiah, as far as the heavens are above the earth, you know, above the earth. So different are my ways from your ways. So we enter into this um, this gospel of the kingdom, this expression of the new covenant, and um, Jesus opens with the Beatitudes. Already he's beginning to teach us this shift from the law of ritual observance to the law of love. Israel built their, um, their life really on, on three things, on the Torah and on the temple worship and on acts of mercy. Those are the three pillars of Judaism. So Jesus starts off right at the very beginning with, with the pillar of the Torah, and he converts the Ten Commandments into the eight blessings, the Beatitudes. And this is a, a beautiful thing. Now, why are there eight blessings and not ten? I don't know. A lot of scholars have tried to get ten blessings out of the Beatitudes, <laughs> but I can't find them. I can only find eight. But Jesus, when he takes these three pillars of the Torah and the temple worship and, um, and acts of mercy, he establishes his own version of those three pillars. The, the, the pillar of the Ten Commandments of the Torah becomes the law of love, which we see particularly in Matthew chapter 5. And the temple worship becomes what Jesus talks about in terms of true worship, which is prayer and fasting and almsgiving. And we see this particularly in the first half of, of uh, chapter 6. And then that of, of uh, deeds of mercy. Jesus converts, he talks about the life of faith and, and from about midway through chapter 6 on to the end of chapter 7, that he calls us to a life of faith. So instead of the Torah and the temple worship and the deeds of mercy, what Jesus portrays is the law of love and the true worship of God through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and then also the life of faith, how we live the life that God gave us. But interesting, we're talking about the, the, the structure of the Ten Commandments. Right in the center of the Ten Commandments is the key element, and that's the Our Father. Pardon? The Our Father. Oh, the Our Father. The Our Father. Jesus places the Our Father right in the center of the Ten Commandments. Because that is the portrayal of that's how we access the life of God is through prayer, and He gives us the Our Father as this guide to prayer. Now I've uh, been writing on the Our Father, obviously through um, in the church bulletins for the last several weeks, and will continue for weeks to come because it takes so much. There's a lot, so much to say about it. Have y'all been reading that? Good, good. So it's it's beginning to. Um, I find an understanding of the Our Father is so, so central to the Christian life. Um, now as we enter into the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sits and begins to teach. This is a little cultural difference, but in Jesus' day the teachers always sat and the students all stood. <laughs> we kind of reversed that. But... Um, if you go to Qumran and you go to the scriptorium where, where the, uh, they had their teaching, over in the corner is a stone pillar, and that's where the teacher would sit. 
and then all of the students would stand around him. And so throughout the, throughout the New Testament, you'll see Jesus, whenever he's teaching, he sits. He go, you know, if it gets too crowded, he goes, goes out to a boat and sits <laughs> so he can teach. But that was just the way it was done, that he would sit to teach. And he begins the sermon with the blesseds, the eight blesseds, the beatitudes. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the word blessed. Um, we use that a lot. You know, I, I know a lot of times I go to the grocery store and, I, you know, and the checker says, have a blessed day. And I always love it when they say that. But a blessing in the scripture is much, much more than just a word of kindness. Um, a blessing was an impartation. It was a giving. Um, and it was a giving of the future. It was a giving of, the, of a future prosperity, a future fortune. So when Jacob and Esau, they fight over, you know, the blessing of their father because the blessing also brought with it the inheritance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, as it turns out, um, Jacob got the blessing and Esau got the stuff. But <laughs> so God, even, you know, even in that culture, God is, is showing that there's more to life than stuff. But... Um, the blessing was the impartation of the father's good fortune into the children so that they would receive that good fortune. And in uh, the case of Jacob and Esau, it was actually viewed as the um, as inheritance of all of his possessions came to the one whom, to whom he had given a blessing. Now, um, we see a similar thing with uh, um, uh, Israel or Jacob when he blesses his 12 sons, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, he blessed all 12 sons. And, of course, we have to, and they aren't, they aren't all good blessings. <laughs> he gives, uh, you know, he, he says some really negative things about some of his sons as he's prophesying their future. But we have to realize that the, the scripture comes to us through the tribe of Judah. And remember, there was this, six of the, this civil war that lasted for hundreds of years between uh, ten tribes against the tribes of Judah and Levi. And um, so Judah had some difficult things to say about his brothers. <laughs> so not all the, not all the uh, especially those, those northern ten tribes, they didn't all get good blessings. But Judah in particular receives the blessing of the Messiah. And of course Christ comes through the line of Judah. Um, but he, pray, he prophesies and prays over Judah, his son, and says, The scepter shall not be taken away from Judah. The ruler's staff shall rest between his feet until the one who is to be sent comes. And he shall be the expectation of the nations. So that's a beautiful blessing. But see, there's this impartation of fortune, impartation of something good that is going to come. And that's the blessing. So when Jesus comes and says, blessed are those, it is an impartation of, of great things. Um, and sometimes you'll see that translation happy, mm -hmm. which is really weak. <laughs> Mine is fortunate. Yours is fortunate, mm -hmm. all right. And that's, and that's good. Mm -hmm. 
That's good. Because, and at least it touches on that, the, the impartation of good it fortune. Does. I thought you were yeah. talking. I thought, well, that you know, does relate. <laughs> it's hard to translate some of these mm -hmm. because these words come from a very, very rich, rich culture. And one of the, the, the reasons that the, these words are hard to translate is they typically have much broader and richer meanings than just a direct translation into English. There, are in, the, in the entire Old Testament, there are only 8,000 Hebrew words in, in the entire meaning. I mean, different words, you know, obviously there are more words if you count them all, but the words that are used are only 8,000. And there are at least a million English words, you know, so it's just... Um, so we have fine-tuned things, you know. We've, we've, we've categorized um, things into much smaller categories, whereas when we're looking at a Hebrew culture, the words had much richer and broader meanings. So a lot of times you look at a word and you're trying to translate it, and it might have a dozen different words you can translate it into. And which one is right? Well, they're all right. <laughs> In fact, there was a Bible once called the Amplified Bible, um, I don't know if it's still in print, but it was an interesting Bible because the translator who did that Bible tried to expand the meanings to kind of get a, uh, uh, a more complete understanding of what the original word meant. That's what, hence it was amplified, so it was bigger. And so you'd, you'd, see a trend, you'd see a word and then you'd see in brackets about four or five other words to give different nuances and flavors. To, to what the original language meant. It's called the Amplified Bible. Why would that go out of print? I think that sounds very interesting. <laughs> well, it was. I think it was built upon the King James, and the King oh, James I has see. kind of fallen yeah. out of out of yeah. use. Yeah. Nobody's ever modernized it, and it became a, it was a very big Bible because it... Uh, There's a Catholic, the study Bible for the Catholics. It does similar... That's they right. They put it down in the footnotes. Mm -hmm. Plus, they have, like... 300 pages before the Bible explaining what's going on. And, and, the, and the Catholic Study Bible is an excellent resource. In fact, even, even the little paperback, New American Bible, the footnotes on that are extremely good. Um, and you should always, you know, when you see those footnotes, it, it really helps in understanding to, to take the time to go down and check out that footnote because there's so much richness there that you miss if you just read the, the text itself. So the word blessed, we talk about it being fortunate. It's also um, a commendation. You commend someone by blessing them. It's an expression of congratulations. Blessing Marcarius can mean congratulations. You know, um, it's a promise of privilege. You know, when uh, it was if you elevated uh, um, someone to a, a place of uh, um, of political or uh, you know into a, to a higher level, you would, you know that was a word that would describe that elevation of privilege. And it was a giving of advantage. So again, it's a very, very broad understanding. Now, a beatitude means a blessing, but it's also a literary style. If you, you see, you'll see this style given many times in the Old Testament. So Jesus is drawing upon a way that they commonly would write and speak in the, in the beatitudes. Um, I've got in your notes uh, Psalm 128 which is an example of, uh, of a beatitude that coming from the uh, Old Testament. Blessed are all they that fear the world, Lord, that walk in his ways. For you shall eat the flavors of your hands. Blessed are you, and it shall be well with you. 
your wife as a fruitful vine on the sides of your house. Behold, thus is the man shall be blessed. Thus shall the man be blessed that fears the Lord. So, and you can see it's, it's a very similar thing. Blessed are you if you do this, and this is what you will receive. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the literary style that Jesus is working with when he talks about the Beatitudes. So let's take a look, and let's just read through these, um, these Beatitudes. I have them in your notes. You probably, they're probably different from the translation you have in your Bible. And you may have yeah. much better ones than this, but anyway, this is the one we got. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall possess the land. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they shall revile you and persecute you and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Let's take a look at these different blessings. What is, who is Jesus blessing here? And the first of the poor in spirit. Now in Luke's version, Luke is much more hardcore. So in Luke, and when he gives this beatitude, now see, in Matthew there are eight blessings. In Luke, the beatitudes are four blessings and four woes. So Luke says, blessed are the poor, but woe to you who are rich. <laughs> <laughs> and to some extent I think Luke had a different audience um, Matthew is writing to uh, really the Jewish diaspora most specifically in Alexandria but also in other parts of the world and, and there was a, a fairly well-to-do society and they were in Alexandria they were not as, um, as, as persecuted they were not as Roman I should say mm-hmm as if you get into Greece and Rome. Luke, writing to the Gentile Christians of Greece and Rome, most of the Christian community were slaves. In fact, in the city of Rome, the majority of the population were slaves. Um, so they not only were poor, they had nothing. <laughs> they didn't have little, they had nothing. And so he's really writing to a much, poor, more, a much poorer audience. And to them, the poor were the slaves, and the rich were the slave owners, the masters who controlled and abused the slaves. So when Luke is saying, woe to the rich, he's not necessarily you know, coming against owning stuff. He's against owning people. <laughs> and so he makes that point. Blessed are the poor, but in Matthew it's blessed are the poor in spirit. So Matthew's writing to people who may own stuff, may have stuff. You know, they may have be a little bit better off, kind of like Americans. <laughs> but he's saying it's not, it's not, he's not opposed to having earthly possessions. He's opposed 
to possessions owning you. Mm-hmm. See, we can, we can have possessions, we can own possessions, we can use them for God's glory, we can use them to help one another, we can use them to build the kingdom, but sometimes they can own us, and sometimes they dictate our lives, mm-hmm. and we become miserly and, and stingy and selfish and refuse to help others, refuse to, to help build the kingdom with, with the things that God has given us. So in Matthew, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, who, although they may own stuff, they are not owned by their stuff. And that they use, they're poor in spirit. You know, that's, they don't see them, they hold very lightly. That's probably a good way to express it. They hold lightly to the things of this world. And they're free, they're generous, they're free to give, their friends free to lend. They're generous with, their, with what they have for the care of others and for the care of the church. And then he talks, blessed are the meek. I love the word meek here. Um, We have a different um, concept of meekness, I think, than what this text is trying to portray. It's the same word that's used of, um, of breaking a horse, of training a horse. So you have a wild horse, and you train that horse to be obedient. You train that horse to, to, to serve you. And so that would be called a meek horse, because he's well-trained. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much, it's not diminishing yourself, mm-hmm. but it is surrendering your ego to God's will, surrendering your ego to God. We're meek when we follow God. In uh, the scriptures, Moses is portrayed as a very meek man. But when you read the story of Moses, he doesn't come across as being meek. I mean, he goes and he stands in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And he demands that Pharaoh release all of his slaves, which is his entire wealth, really. It's actually fascinating if you read the Egyptian account of the Exodus. Because in the Egyptian account of the Exodus, uh, the common theme is, all the slaves are gone. What are we going to do now? <laughs> Their entire economy was destroyed. Because Moses, so that's, that's not meekness in the sense we would use it, but when we think in terms of a trained horse, Moses surrendered his ego to God. And if God said, go stand in front of the most powerful man in the world and demand he give up all of his possessions, he went and did it. Yeah, it's not, it's not meek in our sense. It's meek in the sense of being fully submitted to God. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, that we surrender our egos to God. And when we do that, Jesus promises we will possess the earth, possess the land. Here, it's the, the, the Hebrew word there is haaretz, which is one of those fascinating words because it can mean, uh, it can mean the entire earth, the entire planet. It also can mean... Um, just the nation of Israel. In fact, to this day, that's, that's, that's what they call them. They, they refer to Israel as Haaretz, the land. Um, it's like, you know, when you translate so many ancient languages, with the, the word they have for themselves to describe themselves, it always means the same thing, the people. <laughs> We're the people. And, uh, and in Israel, Haaretz is the earth, but it's, but it's their land. Our land is the earth. It's all that matters. So blessed are those who are fully submitted to God, for they shall possess the promise, the promise of the land. They shall possess the earth. 
And blessed are they that mourn. The mournful, you know, whenever I'm called into the homes where someone has died um, or when there's been some tragedy in their family, I always feel so um, inadequate. And there's so many times there's nothing we can do except weep with those who weep. And that's what the scripture calls us to do that. Um, we share in the suffering of those who suffer. We live in a world in which there is a great deal of suffering. And it is very easy for us to say, well, that doesn't affect us. You know, like the coronavirus, right? Mm -hmm. You know, two or three thousand people have died in China. Well, that's in China. You know, that doesn't really affect us. So we can kind of go on and not think too much about it. Um, I remember hearing a commentator on public radio. There had this was probably in the 90s, 1990s. There was an earthquake in Armenia that killed, mm -hmm. I think, 4,000 people. And she was like, "This this commentator was so upset. She's going, is it? Is anybody listening?" 4,000 people just died. Are we just going to go about our daily lives as if nothing happened? Well, the answer to that question is pretty much yes. Because we get so, if it doesn't affect us as individuals or as fa our families or you know, our immediate life, then we just kind of ignore it and keep going. Jesus is calling us to mourn with those who mourn, to be mournful over the sadness and sorrow of this world to share in the suffering of others. And that's, um, that's what he's calling us. And he promises. This is, again, the same um, kind of promise that Jesus has in many places in his teaching. If you mourn, you shall be comforted. A couple of Beatitudes later. If you are merciful, you will obtain mercy. And both of those Beatitudes are based upon an understanding that Jesus had that I think we still struggle with. All of humanity is one. We're all God's children. And we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We are all one. And by giving ourselves, giving our mercy, giving our compassion, giving our sorrow uh, to one another, we're receiving that from God at the same time. So Jesus stresses that. Blessed are those who mourn. And then he gives us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, justice in the translation I have here. Life is a journey. And it's a journey we never, we never reach the end of. You know? But it's a continuous journey. And Jesus is saying, in this journey, Hunger and thirst, you know, journey for righteousness, journey for justice, journey to be one with God and be right with God. And in that you will have your fill. Oh, I guess it's in the next life, but yes, we would never achieve it in this world, but in the next world we'll be fully united with God. So we spend our life journeying to God so that in the end we are fully united with God. Similarly, to again, two Beatitudes down, blessed are the clean of heart. For they shall see God. The, uh, in the Old Testament, the, the ancient Jewish people were terrified of seeing God. They thought, if you ever see God, surely you will die. But St. But Paul says, no, when you see God, you become like him. 
You know, we're transformed. And um, so blessed are those uh, who um, are clean of heart. And the purity of motive. I think it was Sir Galahad, one of Arthur's knights, who was at once asked the secret of his strength, and he says, it's because I have a pure heart. <laughs> but there's tremendous power in that. When we are singularly focused on following God, um, what other people say and do just doesn't diminish us. We don't, you know, we can follow God with our whole heart and not be diminished by those who would try to hold us back. Clean of heart, pure of heart, singular of heart. Um, and then finally, this last beatitude deals with persecution, which was so prevalent in the, uh, the first few centuries of the church. Blessed are those who suffer persecution for justice sake or for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven a realization that persecution comes I was once I was once listening to a, a mentor of mine and he said the world cannot stand two kind of people two kinds of people the very bad and the very good <laughs> if you live a life of evil the world will shun you but if you live a life of of, of righteousness and the world shuns you as well because um, they feel convicted, they feel insulted that you would live, that someone can live a righteous life when they cannot. So the very good, the very evil and the very good will bring about persecution. So here we, we look at the, um, these eight promises, the new promise of um, the new Israel. This really becomes the new Israel. Uh, that Jesus institutes in the gospel of the kingdom. This is the new Israel built upon the law of love, not the law of ritual observance. Okay. And um, but here's the thing, Jesus is the promise. And when you look at these Beatitudes, they are really the character sketch of Jesus. They give us a picture of who Jesus is, the one who was so poor in spirit that he emptied himself of his heavenly throne to become human flesh. The one who mourned, who wept over the tomb of, Jer of Lazarus, one who wept over unbelieving Jerusalem, who mourned for those who would not follow him, who out of meekness was led out of, uh, like a lamb to be slaughtered because he was so completely submitted to the will of his father, who hungered and thirsted for souls who is merciful to all, even a traitorous tax collector or a woman caught in adultery, he was mercy personified. And who is pure in heart, who refused to ever submit to temptation, who is like us, as the scripture says, in all things but sin, that his heart remained pure throughout his life. Who made peace, who is the peacemaker, who made peace between God and all mankind. And though, and when falsely accused, he was persecuted, insulted, insulted, beaten, and crucified. So what we see in the Beatitudes is Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus. And he gives, he shows us in his life how to live, but then he gives his life to us to empower us to live.